Man, this is amazing to see all of the men in church today on Father's Day. And I just want to stop and recognize uh, just for a moment how significant it is to see you here today. Traditionally across America on Father's Day is one of the lowest uh, attended Sundays of the year. And what I've seen all morning long is we've got men in our community that, you know, because what happens on Father's Day in most families is you ask the guys, what do you want to do today? This is your day. It's Father's Day. What do you want to do today? And the fact that you chose to be here in God's house says so much about your character. It says so much about you, who, what you stand for and what you believe. And I think it says a lot about our church that in every service today, we've had more men in service than even the women. And that's not the case in most of America. Most of America, on average, will have two times as many women in church than men. And what I love about our church is we've got a lot of men that aren't ashamed to serve God. A lot of men that aren't ashamed to be in his house on Sunday. And that's significant. I don't know what happened in America with Christianity, but you don't see it in the Muslim world. You don't see it in the Muslim faith where there's, you know, men in the Muslim world are unashamed about what they believe and what they stand for. And we see that, but it's encouraging today to see you here today. And I just want to, I want to acknowledge that and just say I admire that. It really shows your integrity, shows your character. And we tried to, you know, make the building man-friendly today. You know, we got guys like construction and projects. And so we tried to design it in a way that you would enjoy on uh, Father's Day here. Again, next week, we do not have service at all. We had to cancel the services because of the construction. We're doing a lot of electrical work and a lot of wiring in the building. So there is no church next Sunday. And then July 5th is going to be kind of the, uh, you know, I guess it's called the grand opening of our new renovated worship center. Uh, I don't know if it's a grand opening or just an opening, but we're going to open it back up and it'll be fully renovated, ready to go uh, for the rest of the year. And so that'll be July 5th. Next week, we don't have church. So what we're asking everyone to do is go be the church. There's Uh, In North County, we have some of the greatest churches in all of America right here in our community. So I encourage you to go check one out next week or get together with your small group. We've been studying a lot about the early church and, and looking at kind of what church was like in the book of Acts. So go do home church next week. Get together with your small group. Have church in your living room. Have church at a park. Have church at the beach. Go be the church. Do a project or an outreach. We had one small group that decided next Sunday morning they're going to do a pancake breakfast on Sunday morning to serve everybody in their apartment complex just to love people and kind of be the salt and light to their community. And so what we're asking you to do, if you have an idea, if your small group's going to get together to go do something next Sunday... Put it on our Coastline Church Facebook page. Let us know what you're going to be doing next Sunday so that people who don't know what to do next week can, can go be a part of something. So if you, if you don't have an idea or you don't, you don't know what your small group or what you're doing next week, go to our Facebook page, find something, and join them and be a part of it. Every one of them are going to be glad to see you and they're going to be welcoming. It's going to be a great time next week for us to go be the church. I'm going to see if I can get this figured out. I don't know what's going on with my clicker. I'll just have to use the computer. There we go. Okay, let's jump into the message. This is uh, the Sunday where we don't have a whole lot of technology, and I'm kind of running it myself, so you have to be a little bit patient with me, have a little grace on me as we jump into the message. We're in this series called Christian, and the reason we're studying this word Christian is because nobody knows what it means. There's no definition for this word Christian. In fact, this word is only mentioned three times in the entire Bible. 
And all three times, it's a derogatory term given to people that follow Jesus, that people who follow Jesus would never, ever, ever call themselves. And the problem with that is you can make being a Christian mean anything you want it to mean. Like you can blow up abortion clinics and you can sleep around and you can decide to, you know, just do whatever you want to do and live however you want to live as a Christian. And nobody has any grounds against it to say you can't do that because nobody knows what this word means. So you can hide behind it all you want. But the people that follow Jesus, they had a different word that they used to to refer to themselves. Jesus called his followers something else. And what he called his followers should be disturbing to us today, a little bit terrifying, because it was so clearly defined. You can't misdefine what it means to follow Jesus because he called his followers disciples. And then he clearly spelled out, this is what it means. This is what it looks like if you want to be my disciple. And what he said to, to his guys at the very end, right before you know, the, the whole process of the crucifixion and the Passion Week began. He just had a limited time left, and he's getting his guys together, and he's kind of getting the last-minute training and details and the, and the marching orders. He said, listen, if you forget everything else, if you forget the Ten Commandments and you forget everything in the Old Testament and you don't live long enough to read some of the incredible stuff the Apostle Paul is going to write, here's the main thing. This is the main thing I want you to get by this, this one thing, everyone will know that you are my, my what? Disciples. Again, he didn't use the word Christian to refer to his followers. They were disciples. He said, this is how everyone in the world is going to know whether or not you are my disciple. If you love one another, it's not the bumper sticker on your car. It's not your Christian t-shirt. It's not even the fact that you are baptized or what you do on Sunday. That shows the world whether or not you're his disciples. It's your love for one another. And then Jesus goes on to say in this passage, and let me tell you how to do it specifically. I don't want you to love each other the way your parents loved you, though that may have been wonderful. And I don't want you to love each other the way you love your wife or you love your husband, though that may be great. I want you to do this the way I did it. I want you to take your lead from me. I want you to take your cue. I want you to love each other the very way that I loved you. And there's the problem. Because we all think that we know something about love, and we do. And we all think that we've experienced love to some extent, and we have. But Jesus says, listen, this is how the whole world's going to know whether or not you're my follower, you're my disciple, I want you to love each other, but I don't want you to do it the way you think you should do it. I don't want you to do it the way you've seen it done before. I want you to do it the way I loved you. And that's the problem. That's the problem. Because when you open up the gospel, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you look at the way Jesus loved people, it's kind of like his call on our life to serve him. It's terrifying. And it's terrifying because it's so inconsistent. It doesn't always make sense to us. It, it leaves us in this quandary. And what it does is it creates a tension. When you look at the way Jesus loved, there's a tension. 
And what we all want to try and do is we want to resolve that tension. We want to try to make sense of this, this tension. And we want to try to figure it out. And it's, an, it's, it's a tension that we live with that's uncomfortable because for so many of us, we grew up in a church that was either at one end of the spectrum or we went to a church that was at the entirely other end of the spectrum. And regardless of what church you went to, we all kind of grew up, and we don't want to throw out everything we were taught to believe, but we kind of grew up feeling that something's got to be missing. And the reason is perhaps there is something missing. Because when you open up the New Testament, when you really study and you look at how did Jesus love, how specifically did Jesus love, here's what you discover. It was messy. At times, the way Jesus loved seemed very inconsistent. There were times that, that, that it was just plain unfair. And often, it left you completely confused. It was just confusing the way he loved. And there's this tension. And my temptation and your temptation is we want to try and resolve this tension. And if you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this. If you try to resolve the tension of how Jesus loved, if you try to make sense of it, if you try to figure it out and try to fit it into a nice little neat box, you're going to give up something very, very, very important. And yet all of us are tempted to do this all the time. You know, as a church, this has been tough. I mean, we've tried our best as a church family to hang on to this tension and, and not go to either end of the spectrum. But the reality is there's times where it's been messy. Like we do our best and we don't always get it right. And there's times where as a church we seem inconsistent. That There's times where it feels unfair and there's other times where it's just plain confusing. And every time I get those letters and every time I get those emails, you know, I read them, I kind of just smile to myself and say, you know what, I think it's because we're doing something right. So let me, let me, let me kind of describe and illustrate this tension to you and kind of break it down where you can understand it a little bit more. Uh, a few years ago, before I was the pastor here, one of the things I was invited to do is I was invited to be the resident pastor on the Dr. Phil show for a couple years. And, and Dr. Phil would bring me out every time he had some whack job Christian who is, and I use the word Christian because it definitely wasn't a disciple because it was people who were basically taking the Bible and misinterpreting it to support their agenda. And it was always, you know, just the craziest shows you can imagine. And he would throw me right in the middle of it and say, okay, Pastor Aaron, is that what the Bible says? And then I would try to make sense of whatever they were, you know, using the Bible, you know, to support their hidden agenda or whatever it was. And I would try to make sense of it. And inevitably, after every episode I was on, I was inundated with emails from Christians, always insiders, always Christians. And one email would say, you are too hard. And then the very next email, talking about the very same scene, said, you are too soft. It was like I couldn't win. One person said I was too hard. One person said I was too soft. And it just created this, this tension because people want to go to one side or the other. Let me describe it like this. Another area we feel this tension as a church are those horrible Sundays where we actually get the Bible out and we look at what Jesus and the scriptures have to say about divorce and remarriage. 
And it's just painful. And if you're here one of those Sundays and you've been divorced and remarried, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like getting a root canal without any Novocaine. It's just painful. And it creates this, this, this tension. And yet every time we have one of those series or those Sundays, and it's funny because sometimes people come up to me and they say, you know, every time you do that series on a relationship, we just go to another church for the whole month. We just like, we check out because we're not going to be there. And I get it. I, I, I do get it. But here's the comments and the feedback I get. People come to me afterwards and they say things like, that was so incredibly painful and horrible. It made me feel terrible. I'm so glad I was there. And it's just this, this confusing tension. Like, I felt so condemned. It was awful. But yet, it helped me make sense of why, you know, we're having some of the problems that we're having. You know, I hated every minute of it. It was just, it was just like, it, it was just painful. But yet, it made us go home and have some really honest conversations that we've been needing to have. And th- there's the tension. There's a tension. And you see this tension when you watch Jesus in Scripture. There's, there's times where Jesus seems to be so forgiving. And then there's other times in Scripture where he seems to hold everybody accountable. There are times where Jesus seems so harsh, and then there are times where Jesus seems so very kind. At, there, at times, Jesus kind of points out sin and, and is real tough on it. And then there's other times where Jesus seems to completely ignore sin. And we got this tension. Another place I see the tension in our church is anytime I do a message on sex or, or sexuality, uh, for some reason, it's always the highest attendance Sunday of the year. I remember a couple years ago, we did our love story series where we kind of went verse by verse through the book of Song of Solomon. And I had one week, week number three, we announced it ahead of time. The message title was Great Sex. And we were looking at that in the Bible. And it was like the largest Sunday we had all year outside of Easter. And I always wonder, like, why is it so large? Do people think, like, we've, we've like, discovered the fifth gospel, and, and there's going to be something new to say, and now Jesus says, go and love the one that you're with, and everything that used to be, you know, wrong is now somehow okay. It's like, like what, do they, what do they think I'm going to say? I mean, because it's always the same stuff. And yet afterwards, people come to me, and they say, you know what? That message dredged up some, some really painful memories that I haven't thought about in a long time, and I really didn't want to think about glad you made me think about them. Or people come up and they say, you know, I hated every minute of that message, but I got a copy for my kids and I'm going to let my kids listen to it at the appropriate time. You see, all of us, we're tempted to resolve this tension. But if you try to resolve this tension, you're going to give up something very, very important. And this is what drove people crazy about Jesus. And he was comfortable with it. Jesus learned to kind of minister through this tension, and we dare not walk away from it, even though it's messy, even though it's inconsistent, even though, you know, there are times where people walk away saying, man, I wonder what they really believe. I wonder what they're really all about. You know, John the disciple, uh, years, years later in his life, he you know, we're at a point where all the other disciples are gone. John outlived, to best of our knowledge, all the other disciples. Matthew, in our understanding, was burned at a stake. Peter was crucified upside down in Nero's circus. Paul was beheaded in Rome. John's the only one left, and he's seen a lot. 
I mean, you, you think of his lifespan, the pain, the bloodshed, the tragedy, he's seen kind of the world change. And when Jesus left the earth, he told his followers, he says, I'm coming back. And his followers thought, okay, maybe on Thursday he'll be back. And then he wasn't back. And, and now it's years later, and somebody finally says, John, all those incredible things that you've been teaching us, all these, these wonderful stories about Jesus. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, John, but he hasn't come back yet. And we don't know when he's coming back. We need you to write this stuff down because you're not going to be around much longer. So John sits down and he begins to pen the Gospel of John. And he begins the, 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 the book of John, the Gospel of John, with this grand illustration, this, this, this kind of picture of Jesus being a word. Like, like Jesus is, is the word. And it's as if, it's as if he says Jesus was this, this master painter. And he painted this beautiful masterpiece. And then all of a sudden, as the painter, he goes inside of the picture. And he begins to interact with the people that are in the picture. And the people in the picture don't recognize him as the artist. And they throw him out. And it's this incredible, incredible illustration. And so John begins his gospel. And he gives us the terminology that I think best describes the tension that we feel. He says... The Word, the Word, again, this is this picture of Jesus. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And this made his dwelling among us is is a word picture of Jesus kind of left heaven and he camped out with us. And this word us right here, this, this isn't us. Today, like a lot of times you read the Bible and you see the word us or you see the word we and it's talking about like us universally. It's talking about all Christians and all generations and all of time. John's not talking about us sitting in the room today. He's talking about him and his guys. That's the us he's talking about. Jesus was among us. And then he goes, we, and again, this is not us, we, this is he, we, this is him and his guys. We have seen his glory. In other words, like we saw this happen. Jesus lived with us. We saw him feed the multitude. We watched him perform miracles. We, we heard him personally teach. We lived with the guy. We, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And then John says, you know, let me, to the best of my ability, let me describe to you what he was like, watching him interact with people, watching the way he treated people, watching the way he loved. He said he was full, full, completely filled to the brim of both grace and truth. He was full. He, he, he wasn't balanced between grace and truth. He wasn't 50% grace and 50% truth. He was full. He was 100% grace and 100% truth at the very same time. And that's the tension that we see in the way Jesus loved. So what is grace? What is truth? Truth is you're accountable. Grace is no, you're forgiven. Grace says you're fine. Truth says no, you're broken. Grace says, listen, it's all going to be okay. Truth says no, you're going to have to work on this. Grace says No matter what you do, I love you. Truth says, yeah, but there are consequences. And all of us, we we naturally want to lean to one side or the other. 
Like we naturally lean to grace or we naturally lean to truth. Some of you were brought up in families where, where, where you saw both of these at work. Like, like one of your parents was grace and the other parent was Mr. Ungrace. You know what I mean? And, and who did you like being around more? I mean, Gracie, of course. I mean, they were always, you know, letting you go. And, but a great home had massive doses of both of these. And John, John is saying, listen, after years of watching Jesus, after seeing the way he loved people and watching how he navigated some of the most uh, uh, difficult and intricate uh, circumstances and complexities of life, to the best of my ability, the way I can describe how he handled that is he was to the brim full of both grace and truth. And, and honestly, I want it to be one or the other. Like, like, I want Jesus to pick a side and be one or the other. And, and, and the truth is, you know, I like the verses about truth when, when, it, when it comes to me telling other people what I think they should do. And then I like the verses about grace when it's about me. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And John says, listen, I watched. I saw this happen. It happened among us And the best way I can describe it is he was full of both grace and truth. Then John goes on to say, out of that fullness, out of him being completely full of grace and completely full of truth, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. In other words, we've been given grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. We have been given an overflow of grace. And then John says, now let me clarify For the law, the law, that's the Ten Commandments, that's the other 600 laws that that the Jewish people came up with. That's, you know, that's how you're supposed to live and God's expectations and what you have to do if you don't meet up to God's expectations. And that's thou shalt not, thou shalt not, and thou shalt really not, and, and all of that. The law was given through Moses. That was the movie, the Ten Commandments. He comes down with the with the stone tablets. The law was given. And then it says if John pauses for a moment and says, how how best can I word this? Grace and truth came. The law was given. Grace and truth came. And and the word came could be the word born. It could be the word begotten. Like, like, Like the law was given. The law was this inanimate object. Grace and truth came in the person of Jesus Christ. Grace was Jesus. It was the embodiment of who he was. He was 100% grace and 100% truth all the time. Wasn't the balance between, but it was the fullness of. And that's what made Jesus so messy. It's what made him so confusing. It's what made it feel unfair at times and inconsistent at times, and it was unpredictable. You know, people want him to lean one way or the other. But he was all grace and all truth all the time. And he brought all of it to bear on every person he met. And he brought all of it into every situation that he encountered. And just when you thought Jesus was going to go one way, he would, he would just switch it up and go the other way on you. Like you never knew because he was all grace and all truth all the time. And if you'll reread the Gospels... You'll see that in just about every encounter with every person he came across. Remember the Samaritan woman. 
He meets the Samaritan woman at the well, which there's so much significance and so much depth to that story. First off, that he's talking to a woman, and the reason she's at Jacob's well is because she wasn't welcome at the wells in the city because she had a bad reputation, and she was an adulteress, and she had all these husbands, and she was this broken person that nobody else wanted to be around. And, and, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. They, they despised the Samaritans. They would actually walk all the way around Samaria, adding days to their journey because they wouldn't want to you know, ever associate or even encounter a Samaritan. And Jesus walks right up into the middle of Samaria, goes to this well, talks to a woman. Jewish men did not talk to women in public. They didn't even talk to their, to their wives or their children, their daughters in public. And so here's a woman, she's a Samaritan, and there's Grace talking to her in the broad daylight, in the middle of the day. And then all of a sudden, you know, he goes from grace and he just, he throws that curveball. And he reaches into the most shameful, the most painful, the most broken part of her life. And he says, go get your husband. And you're like, Jesus, didn't you even go to seminary? You don't do that to people. I mean, you don't, you don't reach into the most shameful painful part of their life and and dredge it up he says go get your husband but then he flips back to grace and he does something you don't see him do anywhere else in the gospel he says to this woman he says and by the way i haven't told anybody else yet this you're you're the very first one to know a samaritan woman you're right now standing eyeball to eyeball with the messiah i haven't told anyone else you're the first one to know And you see this tension there with the way Jesus interacted with people. Look at his interaction with Matthew, the tax collector. I mean, mean, this this, this is incredible. you, You think you hate tax collectors today? They really hated tax collectors back then. I mean, tax collectors were so hated, they were their own category. Sinners didn't even want to be associated with tax collectors. So every time you read the Bible, it says sinners and tax collectors. They were so bad, they didn't even want to lump them with the sinners. I mean, they were hated. They, they were despised. And isn't it funny how every generation has that group? Like, we have that group today. We've got sinners, and then there's that group that the Christians really don't like. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, that group that, that we as Christians feel like they're destroying America and they're ruining marriage, and, and it's that group. We don't even call them sinners. They're, they're worse than sinners. They're their own group of people. Well, that's exactly what a tax collector was. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, Matthew, why don't you come join us? Can you imagine the rest of the disciples? They would have been shocked. Jesus, what are you doing? You can't invite him to be with us. We can't be seen with him. Aren't you afraid that people are going to say you accept his lifestyle? Aren't you afraid that that people are going to say you're condoning of his behavior, hanging out with him? Jesus, this is going to ruin our reputation. And Jesus says, you think your reputation is ruined now? Just wait till 6 o'clock tonight because we're going to a party at his house. And he's inviting all of his tax collector friends. And if you thought your reputation was in jeopardy, just wait till tonight because it's going to be completely ruined. Jesus, aren't you afraid? People are going to say you, you accept his lifestyle behavior. It's going to ruin your reputation. And you know what Jesus would say? The Son of Man didn't come to seek and save the found, but he came to seek and save the lost. Jesus would say, I'm not here to guard my reputation. 
I'm not here to protect my reputation. I'm not here even for the found. I'm here to go to who need me the most. Remember in Sunday school growing up, uh, we were all taught that Jesus was crucified on the cross between two thieves. Jesus wasn't crucified between two thieves. The Romans didn't crucify thieves. The Romans only crucified the worst of the worst. They crucified people they couldn't trust. Thieves didn't earn the category of crucifixion. The people who died on the cross were people that they couldn't trust to row a Roman galley. These are people they didn't trust to work as Roman slaves. They're people who they didn't trust to work in Roman mines. These were the absolute worst of the worst people imaginable. And one of the guys is on the cross and he says to the other guy, we're here because we're getting what we deserve. And, and you would think Jesus, you know, kind, sweet, sensitive Jesus, he would say, no, no, guys, you're being way too hard on yourself. You're, you're good people. You've got a good heart. You've just made some poor choices. What does Jesus, he stays silent, basically says, there's no argument from me. And then he looks at the guy and just totally turns the table and he says, but today, when you breathe your last breath, you're going to have eternal life and you're going to go with me and you're going to be with me forever. And then you're thinking, wait a second, Jesus, a couple chapters earlier, do you remember that rich young guy that came to you and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you remember what you told him, Jesus? You told him that he had to sell everything, give up his life, and follow you. And now you're going to let this guy in and there's only a minute left on the clock? I mean, there's no point even rededicating his life. I mean, was it, you know, I, you know, from this point on, I'm going to follow you. Well, from that point on, it's like 20 minutes, and he's stuck. He's not going anywhere else. See, there's this tension. There's this, this paradox where it just, it, it, you just want to try to make sense of it and resolve it. The most famous story revolving around this tension John writes about in the story of the woman caught in adultery. The men brought this, this woman to Jesus. She was caught in adultery. And she's, they said, the law says that we have to stone her. Well, what Jesus could have said is, you know, the Roman law says you can't stone her. So get out of here. Don't try to trick me. But what Jesus does, is he says, okay, let's, let, let's, let's go with the Mosaic law. Let's, let's use Moses' law, for example. This is what we'll do. The, the person who has no sin in your life, you can throw the first stone. The guy here who has never had a lustful thought about another woman, you've never had an affair, you've never committed adultery, you've never sinned at all, you throw the first stone at her. And then all of a sudden, you see Moses' law of retribution break down. And everyone gets uncomfortable. And Jesus, you know, he reaches down. He's like drawing in the ground. We don't know what he's drawing. I, I, I personally think he was writing the name of their mistresses, like Sally. And then all of a sudden, you know, one of the guys would take off. And, you know, we don't know what he was writing. And they leave. And then Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Where are these guys that are accusing you? Has no one? Condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And then look what Jesus does. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave 
your life of sin. Okay, Jesus, which is it? I don't condemn you or you're a sinner. Yes. See, there's this tension there. Did you have to bring up the sin part? Yes. Then how can you say she's not condemned? Because this is how I love. This is how I love people. I am the embodiment of both grace and truth. And as a church, we try so hard to get this right. And and we don't always get it perfect. And we find ourselves in difficult situations. And we don't want to be just the truth church. Like, I grew up in the truth church. I know how to do true church. And, and you know, I, I can beat you up really good with the truth. I, I, can, I can make you leave feeling so bad about yourself, and, and you wouldn't know what to do. It's like, well, he said it was in the Greek and Hebrew. I mean, what can I do? I mean, it's like, you know, we can be true church. Or we could be grace church and just leave people in their brokenness and leave people in their pain. And the truth is, I like truth when it's about you, and I like grace when it's about me. So here's what I've discovered. If you want to know what he meant when he said, love one another, watch how he loved. And it was messy. It was confusing. It seemed inconsistent. It was unfair. And and let me say, do you know how Jesus loved? This is how he loved. Jesus called sin sin, and then he paid for it. He called sin, sin, then he paid for it. And then Jesus declared, after he paid for sin, I don't condemn you. Now go, and I want you to leave your life of sin. And if you don't, I love you. And if you can't, I love you. And if the woundedness and the shrapnel of your sin has left you in a place where where you don't think you can ever walk away from the complexity of your sin, I love you. And if someone has sinned against you and it sent you into this spiral of self-destructive behavior and you're not sure that you'll ever recover from it, I love you. The truth is, sinner, and the grace is, I don't condemn you. And Jesus says, no one will ever love you more, and I couldn't love you any more myself. But there's the tension. And if you try to resolve it, you lose something very, very important. And let me just say, do you know why truth matters? Like, why does it matter that we live with integrity and character? And why does it matter that we're not sleeping around? And why does it, why, why, why does it matter that we stay faithful to our spouse? And why does it matter that we always tell the truth? Here's the reason. Sin has a gotcha. That's why truth matters. Sin has consequences. Sin has a penalty. There is a gotcha attached to sin, and Jesus doesn't want it to get you. And so every once in a while, he says, here's the truth. This is how you need to live. This is how you'll protect yourself. Because sin is a gotcha, and I love you, and I don't want you to live in that brokenness and that pain and that bondage to sin. And you know why grace matters? Grace matters is because all of us, to some extent, have already been gotten by sin. Like all of us have already been gotten by sin. We were born sinners. And grace is the only way home. 
Grace is the only way back to the Father. So you need both grace and truth. And if we're going to be his body, if we're going to be his church, his followers, his disciples, then we need to become dispensers of both grace and truth. And we've got to be comfortable with the mess. We've got to be comfortable knowing that it's going to, get, it's going to create tension and it's going to be unfair sometimes and inconsistent at times. And after a bunch of years of us trying to do this as a church and trying to get it right and not always getting it perfect and doing our absolute best, here's what I'm convinced of. The church is at its best when it embraces both grace and truth and refuses to let go of either. That's when we're at our best. We're at our best when, when, when we embrace both grace and truth, not, not a balance of grace and truth, not 50% of grace and 50% of truth, but 100% of grace and 100% of truth, and when we refuse to let go of either one of them. Because if you want to know what Jesus meant when he said, love one another, and I want you to do it not the way you think you should love, but I want you to do it the way I did it, this is how Jesus did it. And yeah, it's messy. Yeah, it doesn't always make sense. Sometimes it'll leave you confused, difficult. We dare not let go of either one. And I, and I pray as a church that we will always learn to manage this tension to his glory and use it to his glory because the world needs truth. They're broken. They're hurting. We don't want people living in pain and living in brokenness. So they need truth about how to live so they don't get the gotcha. But then they need the grace to give them the power to come back home and the power to, to get out of the, the current circumstance and situation they're in. And that's the power of the gospel. If you want to you know the best definition of the gospel, here, here's the best definition I can give you of the gospel. God is so holy that he cannot and he will not overlook your sin. There's a penalty. Sin has to be punished. There's a payment for sin. And God's so holy, he cannot overlook your sin. But here's the good news. At the very same time, God is so loving, he couldn't punish you for it. But instead, he punished his son, Jesus. Jesus became the payment and the penalty for your sin. That's why he can say, you're a sinner, but I don't condemn you. Why? Because sin's already been paid for. He can't condemn you because sin was already paid for. Now, he can tell you to leave that life because it's hurting you, and it'll take you down, and it's going to create pain and brokenness in your life. So leave that life, but I don't condemn you so the truth is you're a sinner we're all sinners the grace is we're not condemned and we have a choice today to say yes to him to accept the wonderful gift of his grace truth reveals to us kind of our the reality of our situation grace gives us the roadmap home truth says without him I'm separated from God. You know, and as a pastor, I get a lot of questions. And one of the questions that's very common to me is, how could a loving God send me, or send anybody for that matter, to hell? Well, that's really the wrong question because God doesn't send anyone anywhere. He gives everybody free choice. Everybody has free will. You get to choose, not God. 
The real question you need to ask is how could a loving God force somebody against their will to go to heaven? Why would a loving God kidnap you, force you against your will to live in heaven with him for all of eternity? If you don't want a relationship with him, you don't want to receive the free gift of his grace, you don't want anything to do with him. Why would he make you go to heaven? That's not love. See, the truth is, you're separated from God without Jesus. The grace is Jesus built a bridge for you to come back home. But the catch is you've got to say yes. He can't force it. He can't impose his will on your life. He gives you free will. So you've got to make that choice. And I want to give you a chance to make that choice today. Would you close your eyes with me and just bow your head for a moment? If you're here today and you've never made the decision to give your life to Jesus, I'm not inviting you today to become a Christian. We don't even know what it means to be a Christian. I can't even tell you a definition for what a Christian is because there isn't one. The Bible left it undefined. That's the problem. What I'm asking you to do today is make a decision to follow Jesus with your entire life, to give him everything. If you've never made that decision, or you could be here today and you just need to renew that commitment because it's been a long, long time since you've been close to God. And you know, I'm not talking about you just had a bad week. I'm talking about it's been a long time since you've really lived for God. And you know what that means. So if you need to say yes to Jesus today for the first time, or you just need to reconnect to him, recommit to him, I want to pray with you. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. I'm not going to ask you to walk down to the front today. This is between you and God. If you'll pray this in your heart today, God will hear it, and he'll guide you in the next steps, and we'll help you as a church. But right now, this is a moment between you and him. So with nobody looking around, if you want to join me in that very simple prayer of just saying yes to Jesus, would you just, so I know who I'm praying with, would you just raise your hand just very quickly so that I can see you and I know who's praying with me today. Just raise your hand right now. Thank you. Is there anybody else? Thank you. Is there anybody else? Thank you. Is there anybody else? I appreciate those hands. Let's pray. Jesus, just, just what I want you to do is in your heart, just say these words in your heart. Jesus, I invite you to be the center of my life. And you don't even have to fully know what that means or what that entails, but you kind of have an idea of what, what that's about. And then here's the truth part. Say, Jesus, I am a sinner. Will you forgive me? And then here's the grace part. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for accepting me. In Jesus' name, amen.